Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. So we're going to keep going in this series on the Old Testament, and we've been answering tough questions out of the Old Testament. Tough questions out of the Old Testament. And lots of attacks on our faith are coming because of the Old Testament. I had someone email me a meme, okay? Now, I'm not a, I'm not a meme guy. You guys know I'm not a technology guy. I'm not a cell phone guy. But I had someone email me a meme that they had seen on, on Facebook. It was an atheist meme. And, uh, and this is what it said. I'll put it up there for you. And, uh, and so it said, and this was on Facebook, it said, if your religion promotes killing non-believers, uh, beating women, punishing rape victims, or selling your daughters as wives at 12, you're not praying to the God above. You're praying to the one below. And then it says, Read your Bible, okay? So this is the kind of stuff that's out there in our culture. And then it's, it's got passages listed. Now, the interesting thing is if you actually look up these passages, in many cases, you, you, you can just tell. I mean, that's not at all what it says. But, but nonetheless, this is the kind of stuff our culture is doing. Pull a passage here, pull a verse here, pull a couple of words here and say, look it, the God of the Bible is genocidal and violent, and it's a barbaric book, and you Christians are hypocrites to believe it. Um, but it says, you know, kill non-believers, and it's got a few passages there. I, I'd like to actually talk about some of those passages next week, hopefully a little bit. I want to talk about the Bible's treatment of women and, and some of the harsh penalties there. Uh, beat women, Deuteronomy 22. Now, if you look up those passages, there's nothing in the Bible that ever tells someone to beat a woman, but they take these verses and they take them out of context, uh, punish rape victims, and it's got Deuteronomy 22 there, and sell daughters as slaves and wives and all this sort of stuff. And of course, we talked about slavery several weeks ago. That's, that's one that people often say is that the Bible promotes slavery, and we looked at that very clearly, that the Old Testament does not in any way promote slavery. But that was a different message. Today, I want to take on a, on a different one, kind of coming out of some of this stuff. Next week, I want to talk about the Old Testament's treatment of, of women. But today, I want to deal with the question I have gotten far and away the most throughout the series. As we've been going through this series, I've been encouraging you guys if you have questions coming out of the Old Testament, to send them to me, and uh, that I would like to tackle uh, most of them in this series. And, and to be honest, I think over the next couple of weeks now, I should be able to, to uh, tie up most of them. But today I want to talk about the one that I've gotten far and away the most, from young and old, uh, different backgrounds, educational backgrounds and stuff. The most common question I've gotten is, is, is the God of the Old Testament genocidal? And there's uh, several passages in the Old Testament. And I'm going to take a moment. We're going to pray in just a second. And then I'm going to take a moment. And I'm going to read to you probably the most offensive passage in the entire uh, Old Testament. If, uh, I mean, if it isn't the most, it's, it's certainly one of the top two or three. Uh, in fact, I know this. It's Numbers chapter 31. I, I personally know of, of someone who has left the faith and, and actually blames Numbers chapter 31. Okay? So I'm going to read that to you. And we're going to look at it. And that's a common question. And it's not just attacks from, you know, atheists, you know, just pulling, you know, making one-liners on, on the internet. Uh, I know people in this church, gen, you know, genuine believers who've been walking with the Lord for a while. I've gotten heartfelt emails during this series. And how do you explain passages like this? Because I'm struggling with how God can be a good God and that uh, this passage could be in the Bible. And so it's not just attacks from the outside. Part of the reason we're doing this series and part of the reason I'm passionate about today's message is what about well-meaning, godly people and we know that our God is a good God and then we look at some of these things in the Old Testament and we go, how can he be good and how can this be in the Bible? And so I want to tackle that and today at the end of this, I hope that you have uh, total confidence, even if it doesn't ever convince an atheist. 
but that you will have confidence that our God is a good God and some understanding of some of the things that are going on in the Old Testament. So bow your heads with me and let's pray. And then we'll look at Numbers chapter 31. Heavenly Father, I just want to lift up your name today, Jesus. We just want to lift up your name and glorify you. We're here because of you. And we are getting to experience a little bit of heaven. Lord Jesus, I don't know why you've picked us, but here we are, just regular people in Steinbach, and we get to be used by you to, uh, to bring your message and to strengthen your kingdom around Canada and, and across the globe. And so we thank you for that privilege, Lord, and we thank you for, for loving us. And Lord Jesus, today we want to talk about some tough passages in the Old Testament. And there's an accusation that's out there in our culture and that is lodged even in some of our Christian hearts, Lord. There's an accusation out there that, that you are a genocidal God in the Old Testament. And Father, I want to show your goodness today. I pray that you would give us a confidence at the end of this message that we can pass on to our children and to our family members, Lord Jesus, that you have always been good and that there is nothing to be ashamed of in the Old Testament. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. All right, Numbers 31. Uh, I'd rather just stare the worst ones rather than ignoring them and pretending them they're not there. I'd rather just go and look at the hardest of the hard and then say, Lord, what's going on here? Because uh, God authored this book through his Holy Spirit and he wasn't embarrassed to have these things in there. He didn't gloss over or try to rewrite history to make it look nicer than it was. He wasn't afraid to put in the truth. So let's read this particular passage. Numbers chapter 31, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. And they warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. Okay, so that's pretty brutal, but actually it gets even worse. Verse 9, And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp of the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. In verse 14, and Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones. And kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. All right? And so, again, people read this passage, and it's not just atheists who will take a passage like this and throw it in our face and say, this is why I don't believe in God. This is terrible. This is, this is uh, awful. But many Christians read this. We know God is a good God, and we've experienced him, and then we think, how can a passage like this be in the Bible? So the question is, how can a good God command something like what we read in Numbers chapter 31? And the first uh, truth I have to get across to you is uh, one of the pressures that you'll feel when someone attacks you with a question like this, they'll attack you with a question, they show you a passage, they rip out, you know, Numbers 31, how do you, how do you explain this? And what they want, what they're challenging you to do is in one sentence, is give them a one-line answer that explains away this. And I'll just tell you something right off the, the top here. There is no one-line answer for a passage like this. So what they want is, what the culture wants is here, boom, throw a passage in your face, give me a one-line answer that explains this away. And you can't come up with a one-line answer. They say, see, God is genocidal, this book is barbaric. But here's the thing about that. There's no one-line answer to this because this is, piece, is a piece of a much bigger story. 
It's a much bigger story. It's a huge story. It's a story that spans from the beginning of creation uh, all the way, you know, the, the covenants in Israel to Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, and then all the way into the future revelation when Jesus comes back. This is a huge story covering thousands of years, uh, many different authors, many different events. This is a massive uh, human history encompassing story. And you can't take a little piece out of this story, a little piece, pull it out, throw it in someone's face and say, I want a one-line answer. That's what you do if you just want to make a splash, if you want to win a, an emotional argument. But if you actually care about the truth, there is no one-line answer for Numbers 31. So if we're going to have a proper answer for Numbers 31, if we want to actually get to the truth, anytime you take a piece of a story, whether it be a movie, whether it be a book, any kind of story, a true story, a fictional story, you can take a piece out of the middle or near the beginning, you can take a piece out, you can make it say anything you want. I mean, someone sent a, a, a video around, my wife and I saw it recently, and they had cut out little clips of movies, taken all these little clips, out of little one-liners out of movies, taken them out of context, and then made a video about what parents say to their kids. And it was terribly funny because, of course, in the movies, these, these people are saying things that have nothing to do with parenting. But when you put them in the context of parenting, it was hilarious. But that's true of any, any story. If you only come in partway through a conversation of a much bigger conversation, you just take that piece out, you're going to not be able to understand the greater context of the conversation. For example, if you had been on my driveway this last Wednesday afternoon, evening, after I came home from work, about quarter after five o'clock, if you had been on my driveway at that time this past Wednesday, you would have overheard me telling my two sons, Boaz, who's four, and Charlie, who's eight, you would have heard me telling them this. If you had caught the end of the conversation, you would have heard, kill them all. I don't care how you do it. I don't care what you do. I want you to kill them all. <laughs> and now, so you overhear this part of the conversation, and you're going, whoa, this guy's a pastor at Southern Church, and he's a genocidal maniac. Like, he's, encur he's encouraging his kids to murder some helpless group of people somewhere. And you would think that because that's what you heard me say. But the problem is, if you didn't, weren't there for the whole conversation, if you had been there five minutes earlier, you would have seen me driving my bike home from church, coming up the driveway, a look of horror on my face as I see out of nowhere, like a plague, is hundreds of tent caterpillars crawling all over my driveway and, my wall, and the walls of my house, and I don't want them getting to my trees. Okay? I hate weeds. I hate tent caterpillars. And so I grabbed my two sons. I called them there, Boaz. I called Charlie. I said, I don't care how you do it. I want you to kill them all. You can spear them. You can squish them. You can burn them. I don't care what you do. <laughs> But you kill the ten caterpillars, all right? Okay? See, the thing is, you can't, you can't understand the big picture with just part of the conversation. Now, to make, take a little bit more of a serious example, we look at the example of war. You take a command that's given in war. Say a commander, they're protecting something very important and they're being constantly attacked by the enemy. He tells the soldiers, I want you to shoot anything that lives or moves on sight. Okay? Well, in the context of a war, that command is, okay, that's, that's part of what has to happen. He's got to protect it. Their lives are at stake. Things are happening, right? Uh, if a guy down the street is talking about that holding a gun in his backyard, I have concerns, right? Because it's different context, okay? So it's very easy to, have an, to, have an, to make an emotional bang and make a meme, pull a passage of the Old Testament and say, he's genocidal, this is that, he's this barbaric, all this sort of stuff. But if you actually care about the truth, so fine, you just want to make a splash, you don't really care about the truth, make the meme, fine. But if you really want to know the truth, there is no one-line answer 
for when you pull a, a Numbers 31 piece of the puzzle, this huge puzzle of human history and this story that covers the scope of human history from beginning to where we are now to the very end, you, there is no one-line answer for that. If we're going to figure out how that Numbers 31 piece fits in, there's some, there's some things we've got to do first. The first thing we have to do is we have to look at the whole arc of the storyline and we have to see where is this story going? What's the point of the story? If I want to understand a clip from a movie or from a story, I can't just look at the clip by itself. I've got to look, what is this movie about? What's the point of it? What's the goal of the main character? What's, what's he aiming for? So we've got to do the same thing with the Bible. Before we look at this Numbers 31 piece of the puzzle, we've got to put that piece of the puzzle down for a moment. If we really care about truth, we've got to put it down on a table. We've got to look at the whole puzzle. What's the arc of the storyline? The main character in here is God. What's his goal? What's he aiming for? Okay, because this Numbers 31 piece looks genocidal. Let's look at his goal. Is his goal to wipe out peoples? Does he hate people? Is his goal to torment people and all these things? Well, we've got to look at that. What's the point of the storyline? So how are we going to do that? Well, if we start now over this next little chunk of the message, I'm going to pull together a bunch of points that I've preached in a number of other messages over the last year, year and a half. Okay, so a little bit of this is going to be review, but I've gotten this question so much during this series, I'm going to pull them all together here into this one message, and, and we'll kind of put them together on this question, okay? And so the first place we're going to go is we're going to go to Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to see a very important gateway passage for the rest of the Bible. This passage will tell us the purpose for the nation of Israel. It'll tell us God's purposes for people. And, uh, and so it's a very important passage. It's the, it's the covenant with Abraham. It's, this covenant is repeated in a number of different places in the, in the book of Genesis. Very important keystone gateway passage for the Bible. And it's in, God says this to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. So speaking there of Israel. Now remember, the problem with some of these passages comes exactly in these first few books of the Bible where God is commanding the Israelites to do some of these violent things. So the question is, what is the purpose? So right here in this passage, we're going to learn the purpose. Why is God creating the, the people of Israel? Is he creating them to be a tool of wrath and judgment and killing of the nations? Or what is he creating them to be? Okay, because that's what, when you take Numbers 31 out all by itself, that's what it kind of looks like. But let's look at what's God's grand plan. Why did he create the nation of Israel? Well, he says it here, Genesis chapter 12. We keep reading. I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? Okay, so first thing I want you to notice. This is right to Abraham. God says, I'm going to make a nation, the nation of Israel, out of you, Abraham. And the purpose is not killing and destruction because God hates the other nations. The entire purpose for the people of Israel. Why did God create the people of Israel? Because through them, he didn't want to kill and judge and murder. Through them, he wanted to bless and save all the families of the earth. Right off the bat in this gateway passage, right in the Old Testament, this is not in the New Testament, this is right in the beginning of the Old Testament, we see that God loves all the, all the ethnic groups, all the nations of the earth, and actually the reason he's creating the nation of Israel out of nothing through Abraham is because he wants to bless and save them all. And of course, this is a messianic promise of Jesus. Through the nation of Israel is going to be born Jesus, who is going to save not just the Jewish people, but he's going to save all the peoples of the earth who will accept his name. Now, again, I've preached on this a little bit over the last uh, year, and I could show you many, many passages. This is not a minor theme. This is a major theme that runs right from the Old Testament throughout the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. It runs right into the New Testament. But I'm just going to take you to a, a very famous passage in Revelation 7 we've talked about before too. And I'm going to take you to the end to show you that God is absolutely determined to make this, this promise come true. 
So Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10, John now sees a picture of the end. This has not happened yet. This is in the future, someday after Jesus returns. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. And the Greek word there for nation is ethnos, which means ethnic group. So before the throne of God, John sees a picture of the future, and he sees a huge multitude, people from every single ethnic group. God loves all the ethnic groups. This is, this is the storyline of the Bible. This is the climax of the storyline of the Bible. This is what it's all pointing to. This is the big part of the, the movie, the end of the story. From all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. By the way, we got to taste, I mean, I just, I can't, couldn't stop thinking of Revelation uh, chapter 7 last Sunday night at the prayer summit here when we had these people from all the different nations and we were singing together and at one point we had that German guy singing in his language and we had uh, odor, not, the, not body odor, but that was his name, I don't know how to pronounce it, from Iceland. He was singing Icelandic and then we had a Spanish and Portuguese and we were all singing. It was this giant heavenly hubbub worshiping the Lord. It was such a powerful moment, such a powerful moment and it was just a little taste of, of what we're reading about here. All tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay? So this is going to happen. Genesis 12, God makes a promise. I am creating the nation of Israel not to hurt, not to kill, not to murder, but because I want to bless all the families of the earth. In Revelation 7, we see he will accomplish the, pro the, the promise. He will have people saved and blessed from every ethnic group and tribe and nation on the earth. He's, utter, he's absolutely determined, and when God is determined, he is sovereign. He will make it happen. In the meantime, this is why Jesus hasn't returned yet, because the gospel hasn't gone to every ethnic group yet. Okay, so this is the storyline of the Bible. Okay, so now remember, we have got to plug Numbers 31 into this storyline somehow. Because people are saying, look at Numbers 31. God just wants to kill people, wants to hate people. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now we see a problem with that particular storyline because when we look at the storyline of the Bible, we see clearly God loves all the ethnic groups. He loves them and it's absolutely determined and committed to saving and blessing people from every single ethnic group. So this Numbers 31 puzzle piece isn't really fitting in here. And this, this thing of God loving the ethnic groups, does not, it's not just a New Testament thing. I showed you Genesis 12. Let me just show you a couple more passages from the Old Testament. I've read some of these previously, but I just want to drive this home for those of you who are new here. This is not a New Testament thing. This is right from the very beginning. And throughout the Old Testament, we see again and again that God loved all the ethnic groups. Okay? So for example, we read in Leviticus uh, chapter 19, you know Leviticus, it, it consistently ranks in the top one or two uh, top favorite books to read of the Bible for Christians. And um, Leviticus 19 verse 33 says this, uh, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, that's a foreigner, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I could show you passage after passage after passage in the Old Testament. Forget the New Testament. Over and over again in the Old Testament to, to Israel, they were commanded, you will love the foreigners. Right? Exodus 22, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Okay? At Deuteronomy 10, 18 to 19, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners 
in the land of Egypt, okay? So we see now that the story is a little bit more complicated than just, boom, here's Numbers 31, he's, a, he's genocidal, it's a barbaric book. We see now a whole huge weight of evidence here that this, is not, this does not fit the storyline. Okay, so the question is then, if this is the storyline, God loves the foreigner, he is committed to blessing all and saving all the ethnic groups. He's going to do it. And this is the huge storyline of the Bible. Then why do we have some of these commands of violence in the Old Testament to the Israelites? I want you to go and destroy this city or destroy that city. Well, I wanna, let's look at that now a little closer. We've looked at the overarching you know, plot line of the Bible, the goal of the main character, God. Let's now go zoom in a little closer here to Numbers 31 and let's look at some of the surrounding circumstances. What's going on? I want to show you four points. Okay, four points, okay, about the violence. If we look at the violence and the commands of violence in the Old Testament, uh, four things you need to understand about the violence in the Old Testament. First of all, if we actually read the text carefully and not just grab a passage here, a passage there, and take it out of its context, if we actually read the Old Testament carefully, we will see that the goal of the violence in the Old Testament was not to exterminate people groups. It was actually to drive them out of the land. That's the first point you need to understand. The goal of the violence, and the, the overarching goal was not, God didn't want the Israelites to surround the promised land and then kill every last single Canaanite. That was, not the, that was not the goal, that was not the plan, that is not what they did. The goal was to drive the Canaanites out of the land. Now, I know even that bothers our 2017 modern Canadian sensibilities, but we'll get to that in a moment. You just have to understand, the goal is to drive them out, not slaughter them all. Exodus 23, God gives Moses the overarching battle plan of how the conquest is going to take place. Look what he says. And I, God speaking, will send hornets before you, which shall exterminate, no, 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 which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and I keep wanting to say the Hutterites, but it's not, it's not them at all. It's the Hittites. I, I don't know why I keep wanting to say that. But and the Hittites from before you, okay, verse 29 I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild, and the wild beasts multiply against you. Look at this, little by little. It's not even going to be fast. God said, I'm going to drive them out little by little. This is very important surrounding circumstances to this idea. It's just genocidal, wipe them out. Little by little, God says, I'm going to drive them out slowly until you have increased and possess the land. So God's goal was not to exterminate. It was not to get rid of a people. It was to, it was to push them out of the land. And we'll look at that uh, more later in the message. But first of all, a lot of people are sitting here probably, again, we're Canadians. We're, we don't, we're not into, you can't take someone else's land. It's not fair to make someone leave their land. Which brings us to the second point, which is none of the Canaanites actually had to leave. Okay? And again, I've talked about this before. You say, what do you mean? If the goal is to drive them out, what do you mean the goal is to drive them out, but actually none of them have to leave? Well, how many of you remember the story of Rahab, right? Very famous story. Rahab was a Canaanite. She was not a Jew. She's a Canaanite, okay? And famous story, she's in Jericho. God says you've got to destroy the city of Jericho, okay? Rahab helps the spies. Let's just read a couple of passages here. Uh, Joshua chapter 2, uh, verse 8, before the men, that's the Israelite spies, lay down, Rahab came up to them on the roof and said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Okay? She, by the way, right here we know the Canaanites knew who God was. How did they know who God was? Do you know why God did such big miracles in Egypt, such big plagues? The reason he did it, a big part of the reason was so that the Canaanites would hear about it and either turn to him and recognize him as a real God or be afraid and leave without fighting. 
So the Canaanites knew who God was. They knew because they had heard of these miracles that had happened. I know the Lord has given you land. She knew who God was. So did the rest of the people in Jericho. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And verse 14, And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Okay? So there's a Canaanite. She then went and got her parents, her brothers and sisters, her nephews and nieces, her kids. She got her whole family, and her whole family was spared when, Jer- when Jericho was taken, and they got to continue living in the land of Israel and were blessed. In fact, they were so blessed, if you read Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, Rahab is in the genealogy of Jesus. God takes a Canaanite and puts her in the, as a great, 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 whatever, grandmother of Jesus Christ. Does God hate Canaanites? Absolutely not. Did he want to wipe them out? No. He wanted to drive out the ones that refused to leave their demonic gods. But those who wanted to leave their demonic practices and follow him, he said, they can stay. I love them, just like I love my own people. Now you think, well, you showed us, you know, one little exception. No, 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 no. This was a common command repeated all the way through the Old Testament again and again and again. I could show you many passages. Let me just show you two. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3. God says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will separate me from his people. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All peoples. From the very beginning, God said, my house is going to be a house of prayer for all peoples. All peoples. By the way, it's interesting there that Jesus does not say, and this, is, this verse is also in 2 Chronicles, does not say there, Jesus does not say, my house will be a house of prayer for pre- or a house of preaching. I'm glad you're all here and I'm preaching, okay? And that's, I'm not saying we shouldn't preach. We should preach. But he doesn't say, my house is going to be a house of preaching. He says it's going to be a house of prayer. Every church should pray. That's kind of the definition of what it's supposed to be. It should be a prayer meeting. Our churches should be packed. Every prayer meeting should be packed because this is what Jesus called us to. My house should be called a house of prayer for all peoples, though. That's the amazing thing. Right there, Jeremiah chapter 12, and it shall come to pass if they, speaking of foreigners, will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. God says, I don't want, I don't actually want, ultimately I don't want the Canaanites to leave. I would love them to be, to stay and be blessed in the middle of my people Israel, but they're going to have to give up their demonic gods. That's the thing. They're going to have to give up their demonic worship if they're going to live in the midst of my people and be blessed, but they don't have to leave, okay? So first of all, the goal was drive the people out, okay? The ones who will not let go of their demonic worship, but those who want to can stay. Those are the first two things you need to know. Before we talk about Numbers 31 and where does this piece fit in, we see this storyline is a lot different than it looks when you just look at Numbers 31 and say, hey, it's genocide, okay? Which brings up the third point now, which is this, the emphasis throughout Uh, the Old Testament, the emphasis on destruction is not extermination of people, it's destruction of culture, okay? It's destruction of culture. Now again, even that sounds, oh, we're a multicultural society, I don't like that. I'll explain what that is in just a moment, but let me just read this to you in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering, 
to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. Okay, I'm just actually going to pause there for just one second. There's something I want to say about this. I want you to notice something here. A lot of people, when we read the Old, the Old Testament about commands of violence, we miss something that's right here in this passage and is repeated over and over again. And that is, we think that the Israelites were just sent to battle anybody and everybody. They actually weren't. If you read through the Old Testament and just look carefully, it's seven nations that God said they were supposed to conquer. It's really important. Seven specific nations, and they can all be lumped under the name Canaanites because they were the biggest tribe. It was basically different tribes of Canaanites. There were seven nations in a very small parcel of land in the Promised Land, and it was then that God said they must be driven out. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 2, the nations, and I talked about this two weeks ago just briefly, all the nations that surrounded the promised land, God specifically told Israel, you will not fight those nations. So in the Old Testament, sometimes atheists will take the Bible and say, look, this just condones genocide. You Christians are hypocrites because you should be in favor of genocide. It, doesn't, it does not in any way encourage genocide. And first of all, and second of all, it was never open-ended. You'll notice, you know, Hitler tried to take over all of Europe and the world. Uh, Mohammed's followers after Muhammad died, we talked about that two weeks ago too, they took over the, you know, the entire you know, Middle East as we know it today in North Africa. They were, had Spain and Portugal. They were trying to take over all of Europe. There was no end. They kept getting bigger and bigger. You notice in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel never becomes an empire because they were never given a blank check. Go and fight any nation you see. They were specifically told again and again, there are seven, it's this parcel of land from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. Okay, down to the Red Sea and up to, uh, in, into the north or up to Lebanon. This is your piece of land, and it's these seven nations particularly. It's very specific. It's not a blank check. Okay, really important to understand about the Old Testament. A lot of people notice this, but I want you to notice too that the emphasis in this passage, we'll go to the next line now, is not the extermination of people. It's destruction of the culture. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Okay? You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Okay? Now, again, that sounds, that sounds really harsh because we're Canadians. And as Canadians, like, we're just, we're just multicultural. And I'm that way. I love it. Like I, like I told you, you know, last week on Friday, I'm sitting at this table and with these Ecuadorians and Nicaraguans and Sri Lankans and Indians, and, and, it, and I just love it. I love talking to them about their food. I love even more than that, eating their food. I like talking to them about their customs. I love, ta I love talking to people, different countries, and that's amazing, okay? And we as Canadians, we love that, multiculturalism. So we look at a passage like this, destroy the culture. That is terrible, okay? But the thing you have to understand here, this has nothing to do. This has nothing to do with God didn't like, you know, how much spice the Canaanites put in their food. This has nothing to do with God didn't like the Canaanite music. This has nothing to do with God didn't like the Canaanite, you know, some of just the way they live and the way they dress and all that sort of stuff. This has to do with these, the, the Canaanite cultures in particular had become utterly grotesque and vile. Utterly grotesque and vile, okay? I'll give you a little bit of history here. Um, one of the main gods the Canaanites worshipped, and this gets repeated. I'll show you a couple of passages in the Old Testament because people just ignore this. Again and again in the Old Testament, God specifically says why the Canaanites had to be driven out. And one of the things he repeatedly comes back to is their worship of this one particular demonic uh, god they called Moloch. 
okay? And you can learn about Moloch. That's not just biblical history. You can learn any, you know, secular historian. They can tell you about Moloch. It's true. The Canaanites worshiped this demonic god, Moloch. And this demonic creature, they would have, they had statues of him throughout their land. He was, had a human body. He had a bull's head. And they would have these statues, metal statues, and they'd have hands. His arms would be out like this. And they would worship this Moloch. And what they would do is, if you ever just, you needed, like, your things weren't going well, you, your finances, you need your finances to improve, uh, you know, your crops to do well or something, what you would do is they would stoke a fire inside Moloch, the statue, until the statue was searing hot. Then they would take a baby, and they would put the baby alive and screaming into the searing hot hands, and watch this baby be seared, screaming to death. This is not something they did every once in a while. That would be bad enough. They did this regularly. They were sacrificing their sons and daughters to Moloch, searing these screaming babies to death. Now, is that disgusting or is that disgusting? Okay? And God said again and again and again in the Old Testament, those kinds of sacrifices pollute my land. I will not have that kind of thing happening in my land. By the way, aren't you glad? Some of you don't even seem that glad. Aren't you glad that he's a God that won't put up with that kind of stuff? So he says again and again, and this is all throughout the Old Testament. It's not like people go, why did I never see it before? It's all over the Old Testament. You just can't take your little pieces out and put them out and say, look, this is what it's about. If you really care about the truth, you've got to look at the whole thing. Psalm 106, I'll just show you too, but I could show you passage after passage after passage. God said again and again, Moloch is one of the big reasons why I'm getting rid of these people. Okay? Now, if a Rahab, it's not that God hates the Canaanites. If a Rahab says, I'm done with Moloch and I'm going with God, God says, oh, love it. Oh, give me lots of Canaanites like that. But if a Canaanite says, I want to keep Moloch, then God says, you've got to get out of the land. And if you don't want to get out of the land and you want to stay and fight, then you'll be obliterated because that culture must go. Okay? But Psalm 106 says this, They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Deuteronomy 12. And again, I could show you passage after passage after passage. Verse 29, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I might also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. And God said again and again and again, I won't have that with my people here. And so that culture has to go. And if the people want to stay and fight, they'll be destroyed with that culture, but that culture must go. But if the people want to leave, they can leave. And if they want to give up that culture, they can stay and be blessed amidst my people. It's not genocide. It's the destruction of a culture. And I could tell you more. It wasn't just Moloch. Another one of their main gods was a god named Anath who loved to just delight in gore. And, uh, and it, grotesque, violent rituals they would do to Anath. I can't even speak of them from stage here on a weekend. Terrible things. All of, and in addition to that, they had all kinds of perversities that they would perform in their religious rites. The entire chapter, Leviticus 18, is an entire chapter that lists out perversities from, you know, uh, lying with an animal to the worst kinds of incest. At the end of Leviticus 18, God says, this is, based, this is a list of the things that the Canaanites were doing and it was polluting the land. I don't want you doing it. This is why they had to leave, right? Leviticus 18, this is the last couple of verses here. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. Speaking of the list of perversities 
listed in the rest of chapter 18. But for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Verse 27. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. All right? So the Bible tells us very clearly this was the destruction of a culture. And it was necessary to have this destruction uh, of the culture. Now the thing you have to understand though is even with these Canaanites, God has always been merciful and patient and good. And even with these Canaanites, he was merciful and patient and good. This was not a case, I know some of you parents, I never do this, I never do this. But some of you I've seen, you know, your, parent, your kids are ba 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 and you're okay, you're okay, so I'll snap, shut up, right? Like stop it. And you lose it, right? That's not what God did with the Canaanites. It's not like he was sitting there and twiddling his thumbs and finally, that's it, violence, get them out of the land. He gave them centuries to see where are they going to go. Are they going to go worse and worse and worse as a culture? Or are they going to get turned things around? He gave them centuries. We look at this Genesis chapter 15. Hundreds of years before the Israelites ever walked into the land of, uh, into the promised land, God said this to Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not there, speaking of Egypt, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And they shall come back here to the promised land in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites, which is another one of those big Canaanite tribes. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, God said, I'm not going to drive them out until there's no going back. He said, I, I just have, I said, I, he has mercy, he has patience. And so it was only when the iniquity got complete, in other words, it got filled up. It was so bad, there was, not, there was no going back. There was nothing else to be done. It was abominable what they're doing to their kids. It's abominable their rituals to these gods and the things that they're engaged in. And finally God says, okay, I've got to put, this culture has got to go. It's a disease. It has to be cut out. Those who want to repent can repent and stay. But those who won't, they must be driven out. All right? So let's review this now. Why in a few places in the Old Testament were the Israelites supposed to destroy everyone. Well, we looked at the culture had to be obliterated. We looked at the people were given the chance to leave and not be killed. We looked at the fact that those who didn't want to leave could stay if they gave up their culture, okay? And what we're left with is it's only those, it's only those who wanted to stay and keep Moloch and Anath and those despicable uh, practices. God said, whoever stays behind must be destroyed. Now, it kind of makes a lot more sense already, right? You're starting to see, now, Numbers 31, I'm starting to see how this fits in with the bigger storyline of the Bible, with a God who wants to save all the nations. But, you know, we are Canadians, and it still just doesn't seem nice, does it? Like, we're Canadians. Like, isn't there something you could have done? Like, couldn't they just have had their church to Moloch? And, I mean, because, I mean, hey, us Canadians are already okay with them killing 100,000 babies a year. So we're already big on just be nice and let people do whatever they want to do. So sometimes, hey, hey, abortion's fine. Okay, you know, the Canaanites, well, is it really so bad that they were burning their babies on statues? Like really, as Canadians, we're just so big on nice. Maybe God could have just let them keep doing that and the Israelites could have kind of moved next door and they could have tolerated each other. It just seems kind of harsh to us as Canadians. Why does the Old Testament have to be extreme? Let me leave you with two thoughts. First of all, we have to remember what was at stake. And second of all, we have to remember that there is a powerful being out there known as Satan or the devil, okay, who is out there seeking to enslave all of mankind. We've got to keep both these things in view. 
See, one of the things that we forget is we as, as Westerners, and even Christians, not just non-Christians, Christians, but we look, we look out at the world around us and we just believe in whatever we see, and if we don't see it, we don't believe it's real. And we totally forget that behind everything that happens in this book, everything in this story, but not just everything that happens in this book, but everything we read about in the news today, that there is actually right now, and what's going on behind the scenes of all these Bible stories, there is a titanic struggle going on between a powerful being called Satan and all of his forces of darkness, a titanic struggle between him and the forces of God, Satan trying to enslave mankind. Okay? And we just forget when you say, well, that just seems like kind of an excuse. That's why things are so extreme in the Bible is this is, you know, this is just the outworking in the physical of a huge battle for the fate of mankind behind the scenes. That sounds like an excuse. Even to some of us Christians, that sounds like an excuse. But that's New Testament theology. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says this in verses 11 to 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who? The devil. Verse 12. For Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says, everything you see, everything you see out there, you read in the news about terrorism and terrorist attacks and, and, and just evil growing, and, and behind that, you, you think you're going to solve that by, by voting in the right prime minister or president or right government officials? And yes, I know we should pray for our government officials and we should try to elect good government officials and that's absolutely true. And we should, in the human, we should work and do things wisely to mitigate evil. But I'll tell you right now, you will never solve things like terrorism with, with good legislation or wise behavior because behind it are demonic principalities. That's what Paul says in the New Testament. You want to know, you read about massacres and civil wars. There are demonic powers at work. Yes, we're responsible. On Judgment Day, we won't be able to blame the devil for what we did. But the Bible clearly says that the reason there's evil in this world is not just because people are bad, it's because there are powerful forces of evil at work. You want to know why the pornography industry has become so powerful and so wealthy and it's got its tentacles into so many millions of men in North America and in the West? I'll tell you why. Is there's a demonic principality behind it at work. That's what Paul says. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. There's, these bigger, there's this bigger war going on and many of, much of the evil we see in the physical world is the outworking of this bigger battle behind the scenes. And so the same is true in the Old Testament. You say, why does it have to be so extreme? What you don't realize is behind the scenes, there's this powerful being, Satan, who's trying to destroy the plan of salvation. He wants to either, he knows that it's going to come to this nation of Israel. He either wants to destroy them outright, or he wants to get them to compromise into demonic practices so that they will come out from under God's protection and so he can destroy them outright. But he's going to do whatever he can to destroy them. And so, just like if I see a guy, there's a command in a war, shoot you know, anything that moves, shoot him on sight, because whatever, it's part of a war. Some of the extreme things you see in the Old Testament, this is the direct outworking of God saying, the plan of salvation, I want to save all of mankind. But Satan is fighting as hard as he can to stop it. And that's why things sometimes have to be so extreme. Things sometimes have to be that extreme. Well, let me finish with this. Yesterday, as I was meditating on this, I, was, I, I had a thought, and I began to wonder about it. I thought to myself, why is it that the New Testament writers, Paul and John and Peter and these guys who walked with Jesus and knew Jesus, 
Why is it that their questions are different than ours? And it's not bad that we have questions. I love that. Asking questions is good. But why is it that we Canadians ask different questions? Why is it that we're bothered by the violence in the Old Testament, but these New Testament writers who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of love, nowhere ask the question, why is there violence in the Old Testament? And they love the Old Testament. They love the Old Testament more than we do. The Old Testament was the New Testament writers' Bibles, and it's still our Bible too. So why don't they ask the question the way we do? Like us Canadians, we're bothered by it. And again, it's not bad that we have these questions, but why are we so bothered by it? But the New Testament writers who were full of love and talked about love all the time, why are they not bothered by it? And you know, a couple of things came to my mind. First of all, uh, I think that we have lost our sense of the awfulness of sin. We've just lost our sense. Niceness has become our God in Canada. So it doesn't matter how bad something is, let's just be nice. We've actually lost our all perspective that actually the wages of sin is death, that actually sin is awful. And we've lost our perspective of how lost we are as human beings, that we are not at base nice, that we are at base wicked and desperately in, in need of a savior, and we've lost our perspective of how bad an eternity away from God is for people. And lastly, we've lost our perspective of the holiness of God. We demand that he be nice because we would like him to be a God in our image. And I've just showed you the storyline of the Bible. There's no question he's good, and there's no question he's loving. But there's also no question, really nice is not one of his attributes. He is also holy. He is awesome and he is holy. Is he good? Yes. Does he love? Yes. But he also isn't ashamed of any of the stories in here. He is also holy. And whether we believe in him or not, whether we, are, are, whether we are pleased with him or not, whether we are offended with him or not, someday all of us will stand before him on judgment day and he will be vindicated in everyone's eyes. He is holy. He is good. He is loving. So now we're going to celebrate a whole bunch of people that are giving their lives to follow this, this God. And we're going to worship all together with these people in heaven someday with people from every nation and language and tribe. But I want us to bow our heads first, and I want us to give glory to that God because he is good and he is holy. Amen? Father, we just want to lift up your name. I want to lift up your name. You are holy and you are good. You love us with an immense love. You gave up your son for us. But Lord Jesus, you are also holy and you are righteous and you are pure. Thank you for being those things as well. We love you. Thank you for the testimonies we're about to see, the lives that you're changing here at our church. We just feel so blessed to be a part of this. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.